Should we start by just giving a huge round of applause to the band, the choir, the singers, the musicians? Unbelievable. Unbelievable. So picture the scene. I'm 25 years old. I'm sat with my therapist processing my quarter-life crisis. And he asked me the question, Pete, do you have any memories of experiencing shame in childhood? So I think about it for a few moments and I respond with, no, not really. Which is clumsy, right? That's an open door for a counsellor. Ooh, not really. So there was something. So I respond saying, yeah, but nothing significant, nothing substantial, which is, again, really clumsy because it leaves an open door for the counsellor. Ooh, well, tell me an insignificant memory of shame. He wasn't that creepy, by the way. He didn't speak like that. I just added the voice to add some drama to the story. Anyway, the the following words come out of my mouth. And as they come out of my mouth, I I think I'm going to laugh as I say them. I say, at the age of 12, I still used to wet my bed. Apart from I wasn't laughing, I could barely get the words out through my sobbing. Now, you'll be pleased to know that I've been controlling that magic muscle for over 30 years, something I'm incredibly proud of. Thank you so much. But as I say those words, memories of shame hit me, come flooding into my memory. I remember being 12 years old on a football tour with the Wickham District under-12s football team to the north of the country. I remember waking up on tour in a wet bed. And having to find the coach and explain the situation, he looked irritated and disappointed with me. I remember waking up in another wet bed at my mate Clive's house. I had to find his dad, explain the situation. He looked frustrated and disappointed in me. Those experiences sent shockwaves of shame through my body. Now over the following years, I buried those experiences in layers of emotional sediment. But now in counselling, the fossils of shame were clear to see. Like I was feeling it again now as a 25-year-old. You see, shame is like swallowing a lie, that there's something wrong with you, that you're unworthy of love. I felt like a failure. If the problem's failure, at least the remedy is clear, which must be success, right? Like, I'm going to strive for perfection. I'm going to aim for the stars. I'm going to eliminate the risk of failure. And if I'm constantly tasting success, then how can I be defined by failure? That was my mindset. And it worked until it didn't. So here I am with my therapist, sobbing, feeling lost, disconnected from myself. This was my coming to my senses type moment. Waking up to the realization that all was not well. But it was more than just an emotional awakening. It was a spiritual awakening. You see, I grew up believing that God exists, but more than that, he's loving. And more than that, he loved me. The problem was there was a gap between my intellectual beliefs and my lived experience. And I knew I wanted to close the gap. So this was a fork in the road moment. I knew I could close the gap by abandoning my beliefs. In other words, rejecting my faith. Or I could go on a spiritual journey seeking to integrate my beliefs with my lived experience. And I went on that journey. Now, some of you, you'll be thinking, what on earth has this got to do with Christmas? This is like group therapy on speed. It's a lot cheaper than group therapy, by the way. So thanks for making this possible. Huge help for me. Hopefully the link will become clear, so stick with me. Jesus told a story 
perhaps the best known of all his stories, the story of the prodigal son, of a son that rejected his father, bringing shame on the family name, taking his inheritance early, going off to a far off land and spending the money on reckless living. And then he hits rock bottom. He has his awakening moment and his awakening moment isn't to do with bedwetting. His awakening moment is to do with the experience of extreme poverty with the memory of the abundance of his father's house. So he decides it's time to close the gap between his intellectual understanding of abundance and his lived experience of poverty. He goes on a journey home. Now he knows that he's brought shame on his father and on the family name. So as he journeys home, he's rehearsing a speech like, Dad, I've sinned against heaven. I've sinned against earth. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. Now a hired servant can earn an income and eventually purchase their freedom. Perhaps the son was thinking, maybe I can earn enough to buy back the sonship that I tossed aside in narcissistic living. Now, to understand the story in all of its glory, you need to know a little bit about the context of first century Middle Eastern culture. We're going to try and enter the mindset of a first century Jew listening to Jesus tell this story. Now, you need to know three things to enter the mindset of someone in the crowd. Number one is that humanity is the lost son. So Adam and Eve left the father's house, left the Garden of Eden, wanting to find life outside of God. They wanted to be masters of their own destiny. They wanted to be architects of their own vision of human flourishing. And they end up in a far off land, desperate to get home. And the story is repeated with the story of the nation of Israel. Israel throughout the scriptures is referred to as God's son. But they reject God. They try and find life outside of God. And they end up in exile in Babylon in a far off land trying to get home. And by the time you get to the first century, the time of Jesus, they're back in their homeland. But they haven't been reconciled to their father. They're not free to be the people they were created by God to be. They are longing for home. And this story is repeated in my life. And I want to suggest that this story is repeated in every human story. Like perhaps at some level, we are all lost sons and daughters craving home, trying to live our best life, live the life that we were created for. Here's the second thing you need to know. In the context of the Middle East, in the first century, there was a well-known ceremony called the Kezazar ceremony. Now, the Kezazar ceremony went something like this. If a son shamed the father and the wider family, if that son ever dared to come home, the people of the village would line up on the threshold, the entrance into the village. They would take a clay pot and they would smash it on the floor in front of the returning son. This was a showdown moment. It was a way of saying, our, our relationship with you is like the clay pot. It's in hundreds of pieces. It's beyond repair. It's irredeemable. The word Kezazar literally means to cut off. The son was being cut off from the family. This was the point of no return. This is brutal. Now the people listening to Jesus tell the story like they're expecting a Kezazar ceremony. Some of them would have been thinking, if Jesus is a prophet, a rabbi, a teacher, maybe he's telling us that God's going to perform a Kezazar ceremony on us. He's going to cut us off from our inheritance. He's going to block the path back to Eden. He's going to block the entrance to the Father's house, the kingdom of God, heaven on earth. 
the crowd would have been leaning into the story. Here's the third thing you need to know. That in the first century in Middle Eastern context, Jewish fathers would never run. So boys would run. Male slaves would run. But a Jewish father would never run. Because to run, you'd have to hitch up your robes, expose your bare legs, which was a source of shame in that time. And then you'd have to start running. So have these three things in mind. Humanity, Israel is the lost son. The crowd, they're expecting the Kezazar ceremony. Jewish fathers don't run. If you piece these three together, here's the power and the punch in the story. The crowd were bracing themselves to the Kezazar ceremony. But if you listen to the story of Jesus as told in Luke chapter 15, there is no Kezazar ceremony. There is no moment where the wrath of the Father is poured out on the Son. A moment of revenge. A moment where the Son is humiliated. There is none of that. In fact, quite the opposite. The Father humiliates himself instead. He hitches up his robes, exposes his legs and starts running. So the crowd would have been asking, like, why? Like, why run? Why not walk in a really moody fashion? Like, why not let the son grovel, beg, demonstrate his remorse? Here's the reason why the father starts running. The father knows that if the people of the village get to the son first, they're going to perform the Kezazar ceremony. If there is any chance of redemption, the father has to get there first. So it says in the story of Luke 15 that the father waits and watches. And we don't know whether it was weeks, maybe months, maybe years. But one day he sees in the distance his son, a gaunt figure, but recognizably his son. And he can't help himself. He hitches up his robes and he starts sprinting because he wants to get there first. Now, the boy is terrified. He's still rehearsing his speech. Father, sinned against heaven, sinned against earth, no longer worthy to be called your son. And then the father arrives. He doesn't have a clay pot in his hand. He has a ring and he has a robe. He interrupts the speech. He puts the ring on his finger, the family robe around his shoulders. These are symbols of of sonship. And then you have this incredible embrace, this moment of pure joy, ecstatic union. And the crowd would have been stunned into silence. What kind of father would do that? Would act with such compassion and grace, and mercy, and kindness, and love. You see, the son knew that his father was all of those things, but there was a gap between his intellectual beliefs and his lived experience. And in that embrace, the chasm was crossed. The great divide healed. In the context of this embrace, the son more than just intellectually understands that my father is loving. He feels it in his body, in his being, in his heart, and in his soul. Sitting in that room with my therapist 20 years ago, I knew I didn't want to settle for a faith filled with intellectual ideas about God, but devoid of spiritual experience. I wanted to close the gap, so I began my journey home. And this was my discovery that home was running to me in the person of Jesus. 
You see, this is the Christmas message. God never gave up on humanity. He never gave up on Israel. He never gave up on me. He never gives up on you. 2,000 years ago, the very hinge point of human history separating before and after, God did something remarkable. He took on human flesh. This is the creator stepping into creation. This is the author stepping into the story. The playwright taking to the stage. And what did he do? He hitched up his robes and he started running to find us. Took on humanity and came searching for us. This is the most beautiful thing you could possibly get your head around. He lived the perfect life, showing us what it means to be human. He then humiliated himself by dying a criminal's death so that our sins might be forgiven and that we might be reconciled to the Father. No Kezazar ceremony, no humiliation for us, no clay pot treatment, right? The judge is judged in our place so that we can taste freedom and the life that we were made for. You see, what we brought to the embrace, at least what I brought to the embrace, was brokenness, shame, and a longing for redemption. And what God brings to the embrace is a ring and a robe and the offer of redemption. And with it, the most almighty embrace. And it's an embrace that heals. It's an embrace that restores. It's an embrace that creates belonging, a sense of family. It's the greatest gift on offer this side of eternity, experiencing the perfect love of a perfect heavenly father whose affection towards us is stronger than death and enough to bring resurrection life. I'll close with this story. One of my favorite artists, Charlie Mackesy, I'm sure many of you are aware of his best-selling book, The Boy, the Mole, the Fox, and the Horse. He grew up in Northumberland, and he tells the story of when he went home to visit his family, and he decided to go for a walk, and as he left his house, he noticed that one of his neighbors, Mrs. Fletcher, was waving at him, so he waved back, hey, Um, and then realized she wasn't waving. She was beckoning him over. So he runs over to see if she's okay. She'd fallen over in the entrance to her field in in the mud. So he reaches down to pull her up. And as he pulls her up, a book falls out of his coat and it lands face up in the mud. And the book was called What's So Amazing About Christianity? Now, Mrs. Fletcher looks down at the book and says, that's exactly where the book belongs in the mud. And Charlie responds, hmm. So you don't think much of Christianity then? And she responds, quick as a flash, I don't think much of Christianity. And Christianity doesn't think much of me. And that moment, Charlie can't quite think of an appropriate response. So helps her, says goodbye, continues with his walk. He returns to London and the next week he's trying to process, what could I have said? What, What should I have said to Mrs. Fletcher? All these things come to mind. And he decides, I'm going to write her a letter. This is what I want to say to Mrs. Fletcher. This is the letter that he wrote. Dear Mrs. Fletcher, you said Christianity belongs in the dirt. You're right. It's exactly where Christianity belongs. It's a great metaphor, Mrs. Fletcher. It belongs in the mud because that's where I am. That's where we are. It meets us. God meets us in the mess of life. He gets in the mud and opens the gate to freedom. It's not neatly wrapped. It's not a smug, polished little sermon. It's not a formula to success. It's not a way to gain superior moral status over other people. And it's not about being right. It's about love, Mrs. Fletcher. It's not a product or an escape from reality. It's not something you do to make you happy. It's something that was done in history for us. 
It's a thing of extreme beauty. He came to us. He didn't just sit and watch. And the people who were invited first and saw him as a baby worked with sheep and didn't have a religious bone in their bodies. They were religious outlaws, actually, Mrs. Fletcher. And the first people to see him resurrected were oppressed women. It's a raw, heartbreaking, bloody offer of forgiveness and homecoming to ordinary people like you and me. And he didn't just come alongside our mess. He actually became it. He suffered and absorbed it like the pages of that soaking book. He was dead in the mud, Mrs. Fletcher, but is alive. He became the ultimate exile and was forsaken. That's the cross. Just so that we could come home totally forgiven and feel beloved on the earth. That's called the grace of God. We are like lost sheep. And I know you can relate to that. And our lives and culture will never be the same without it, even though we are busy crushing it deeper into the mud as we speak and getting more and more lost as a result. The atheist arguments are interesting, but I need something more than an argument because arguments don't love me. I need a text, spiritual belonging, and they're not offering me one. We need an answer to the alienation. And I know you think it's crap and belongs in the crap, Mrs. Fletcher, but maybe you were never shown how beautiful it is, how Jesus accepts you and would identify with your loathing of religious hypocrisy, how it would come and die even if you were the only person living on this planet in your cottage because you're loved. Jesus loves you, Mrs. Fletcher, forgives you, and wants to bring you home. Then signed it, Charlie Maxey, and sent it to Mrs. Fletcher. You see, this is the true message of Christmas. Wherever you find yourself, in a far-off land or closer to home, heaven is always closer than you think. Through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, the invitation rings out. God waits with the ring and with a robe, and more than that, with an embrace that has the power to break every chain, heal every heart, open every prison door, lift every head, and overcome any darkness. The simple invitation of Christmas to anyone on the outside of the Father's house looking in, or anyone on the inside of the Father's house looking out, is that fullness of life is found in the embrace of the Father. Or to put it another way, the simple message of Christmas is welcome home.